Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7 this morning as we continue in our series through the book of Hebrews, Faith and Certainty. Before the dawn of time, and by dawn of time, I mean before Netflix, when you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to wait until that show aired on television which was an absolutely ridiculous way to do it. But every kid grew up knowing Saturday morning is the holy grail of cartoons. All the, all the best shows come on on Saturday morning. And my mother, in the spirit of the Wicked Witch of the West, <laughs> dictated that Saturday morning would also be the day for chores. And she insisted unjustly, unfairly, and unreasonably that all of our chores be done before we watch television. Okay, guys, you missed your cue here. The proper response is boo hiss. Okay, I know some of you grew up in a library, so you were taught you're not allowed to ever make noise, but here, let's try again. Okay, there we go. That's what we're looking for. So I had Sunday, or Saturday morning down on lock. There were a couple of good shows that came on first, but my two favorite shows came on after that. Gargoyles, because that's appropriate for kids, and Ronin Warriors. That is cartoons at their zenith. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. And I remember one fateful Saturday morning. I woke up, I started my chores, and I realized... I was not going to have time to get them done before my string of shows started. And so facing this overwhelming dilemma, I looked at my room, which looked like twin gorillas had gotten into a no-holds-barred cage match with a hippo named Larry and then celebrated New Year's afterwards. Right? Like it's FEMA appropriate to send in disaster relief for how bad that room was. And I'm looking at it like... I don't got time for this. I got cartoons to watch. And so in my brilliant nine-year-old brain, I came up with a plan. And the best part of this plan is every one of you who has kids knows immediately where it's going. I took all the toys, chucked them in the closet. I took all the clothes, I chucked them in the closet. I made the bed. I used my body weight to latch the door closed because it was floor to ceiling. And I went and sat down in the sweet cartoons of victory. Mom was suspicious. You do your chores? Yep. Clean your room? Yep. All of it? Yep. I can go check? Do it. Just take a quick peek in there. Look at how beautifully clean that room is, and you'll see. Basking in my brilliance. Till mom opens the closet door. And I missed my favorite cartoons that week. Because what I did didn't count as cleaning. See, the mess still existed. All I had done was cover it up. 
That's the old covenant. That's the sacrificial system. Sin creates this great big mess of a problem in our lives, but the law has no solution to that sin. It can't take the mess away. It can't clean the mess up. All it can do is chuck the mess in the closet and pretend it's not there for a minute. So we need a new system. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The problem with the old covenant isn't that the old covenant was bad. Romans 7.12 tells us the law is good. The problem is more Romans 8.7. The mind that is set on the flesh does not obey the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Notice it doesn't say it will not. It says it cannot. See, it doesn't matter how great the law is. It doesn't matter how great the covenant was. We could never hope to obtain the promise because we could never keep it. We see it all throughout the history of Israel. Israel commits to the covenant. They try to keep it for a season, and then they turn. They always turn because their hearts don't desire to do what God says to do. What we need, the law couldn't provide. So we need something new. Verse 9. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand, bringing them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The old covenant was a conditional covenant. Do these things and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you'll be cursed. It was a covenant built on our performance, and historically, the people of God's performance, less than stellar. So the author here starts quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. What was happening at the time is this was during the reign of King Josiah. The people of God had just rediscovered the law. Having lost it for a long time, they rediscover the law, which leads to a period of national repentance where they committed to a communal recommitment to honor the covenant of God, which they kept for about 12 seconds. This is the pattern of the Old Testament. It is a cyclical cycle that we see all throughout it. It goes like this. The people of God honor God and are blessed. The people of God turn from God and they suffer. They cry out to God in their suffering. God delivers them from their suffering and they turn back to him, honoring him for a season. And then they turn from him, rinse and repeat. Round and round the cycle goes. In fact, that cycle is not just Old Testament. That is the cycle of God's people throughout history. We are always somewhere on that wheel, turning from God again and again and again. Because our hearts aren't wired for Him. We need something new. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Okay, so what we're going to see in this quotation of Jeremiah 31 is a comparison between the two covenants in which we see four better promises. So the old covenant wasn't doing it. The old covenant wasn't achieving what it was intended, what the people intended it for because we couldn't follow that covenant. And so God has a new covenant for us. A covenant that can change something. And the first better promise is a better focus. The old covenant is written in stone. The new covenant is written in our hearts. The old covenant was about external change. The new covenant is about internal change. The old covenant gave us directions but provided no power to follow those directions. It would be like somebody giving you directions for where to go, putting you in a car, but the car has no gas. The new, co- the new covenant doesn't just give us the instructions. It also provides us with the power or the ability to carry out those instructions. Second half of verse 10. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Better promise number two is a better relationship. Now, if you are well-versed in the Old Testament, you might note that this is the exact same language that is used to describe the Old Covenant. God says in the Old Testament, he will be their God, they will be his people, but... The expression and experience of it in the new covenant is so much greater. See, in the old covenant, they were his people, and God dwelled among them. They knew the rules. They knew the expectations. They had some kind of general awareness as to who this God guy was. But while he was in their midst and went with them and was in their presence, there was still a great big chasm that existed between God's people and God. Because the old system is a system of separation. Just look at the temple. Outer courts, court of Gentiles, court for men, court for women, holy place, and the holy of holies. It is layer after layer of separation. In which only one dude, one time a year for one specific purpose, was allowed to pass through the curtain to offer atoning sacrifice and enter into the presence of God. Because the great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, this great curtain separated the people of God from the presence of God. Until Jesus on the cross lifted himself up on the nails in his wrists and declared in a loud voice, it is finished. And when he made this declaration, a massive earthquake tore through Jerusalem, right through the middle of the temple, and it ripped that curtain in two. Not from the bottom up as if we were making a way in, but from the top down as if God said, you know what, I'm done with this. And he ripped the curtain asunder. I'm done with the division. I'm done with the separation. I'm done with this distance that exists between my people and myself. It's finished. The tearing of the temple is God's invitation in. An invitation to all of his people to enter in to his presence. It's a better relationship. 
verse 11. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. With the removal of the separation, God lays a groundwork for a more intimate relationship. It's a better promise, number three, is a better knowledge. See, the old covenant was entered into corporately as an agreement by a nation. But the new covenant, while keeping a communal aspect, that doesn't change. The new covenant adds to the communal components a personal connection, a personal relationship, a personal invitation. See, the old covenant was built really around what tribe you're from, your birth. The new covenant is laid on the foundation of a relationship with Jesus. John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not rule-keeping. It's not being a good person and living a good life. It's not doing these things and avoiding these things. Eternal life is knowing God, who because of Jesus is accessible to all of his people, from the least to the greatest. Church, what that means is it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter your background, your history, your struggles, the sins that you've committed, or the struggles that you continue to fight against in this life. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. If you are the worst of all sinners, more depraved in the heart than any person has ever been before you, if you invented new ways to sin that no one had even thought to try yet, or if you're captain religion with merit badges for perfect church attendance and always saying fiddlesticks when you hit your hammer with a thumb with a hammer, it doesn't matter. From the least to the greatest, all of God's people are invited into his presence. All of God's people are invited to know him and have a relationship with him because the distance, the separation has been removed. But if we can be honest about least and greatest, it's not about reality. That's about perception. Some of you are in here believing that you are so incredibly unlovable, so incredibly unworthy, so incredibly broken because of things that you've done, mistakes that you've made, that that guilt and that shame are all that you can see when you look at yourself and you would call yourself the least. And God says, I don't care that you're the least, come into my presence. And some of you are here thinking you're God's gift to this world. Look at how I followed the rules. Look at all the great things that I've done. Look at my achievements for Jesus. You're welcome. Jesus says, you're invited in. Both of you are wrong in your assessment of yourself. But the statement from the least to the greatest is that all of God's people are invited in. If you belong to Jesus, you are invited into the presence of God, and it doesn't matter how you perceive yourself. He says, come in. Come in. Verse 12. 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Better promise number four is better forgiveness. This is what the old covenant couldn't hope to accomplish. This is what the old covenant couldn't do. The old covenant could cover up sin. The old covenant could put sin in the closet so you didn't see it at first glance. But the old covenant had no power to take sin away. The better promise that we have, the better forgiveness that we have, is that the new covenant doesn't just delay God's wrath against sin, doesn't just buy us time, but it actually removes sin. For God will remember our sins no more. Uh Uh-oh. That seems like a logical paradox. Right? Because one of the defining characteristics of God is that he is omniscient. That is, God has perfect knowledge. So, riddle me this. If God knows all things, then he cannot forget. And if God forgets, he doesn't know all things. So, how do those two things happen together? It is... So much more beautiful than you think. God has perfect knowledge of all things. And when it says God will remember our sins no more, it does not mean that God forgets. Like when you go to confess, you're like, God, I'm so sorry I did this. God's like, huh? You did what? I I had no idea. I must have. He can't forget. It doesn't work. If you have perfect knowledge, you can't forget. And we shouldn't want him to. Let me explain to you why. Have you used Carfax? Anybody familiar with that process? You want to buy a used car, right? You put it in the VIN, license plate number, and it gives you this whole report. Here's the accidents. Here's the service history. Here's the usage. Like, was this a rental car? Was this privately owned? Was this used in a demolition derby? Here's the ownership history. Here's everything that happened. Puts this report together. Here's everything that's happened with this car. Everything that's known about it. Everything that's gone wrong. It gives you this whole great big list. And you look at that. And you look at the price of the car. And you get to decide, do you want to buy it? God has a perfect Carfax report on your life. From birth to death. Sins that you haven't committed yet, you haven't thought about yet, struggles you haven't even dreamed of having, everything that you have done wrong, every mistake, every shortcoming, every failure, every imperfection and bad choice of your life, he has the list of all of it. Everything that's ever gone wrong with you. I promise you that list is shorter than mine. He has a perfect report on all that has gone wrong. And not just the things that you've done or the things that you've said. He knows every wicked thought, every ugly heart moment of your life. He sees all of it. And he looks at the price tag for purchasing you and it says Jesus. And in his unfathomable grace and mercy, God looks at the full report of everything that's ever going to be or has been wrong with you. He looks at the cost and says, yes, I'm still buying you get that? How incredibly beautiful that is. See, through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, God chooses out of his great love and mercy not to hold our sin against us. What that means is that God looks at our broken down, beat up, scratched, demolition derby recovering car, and he says, I'm going to treat it like it's new. Because it's mine. Because you're mine. 
he chooses not to hold that sin against us, to treat us as if it hadn't happened. Church, this is the difference between a couple that's engaged and a couple that's been married for 30 years. Right? Because the engaged couple, what do they do? Look, I've done these counseling sessions. Hey, can you tell me what are the frustrations you have with your spouse? Nothing. They're just perfect. I can't think of a single thing wrong with them. They're basically a little version of Jesus. <laughs> Give it six months. We'll talk again. Right? But that's the attitude they always have. They're perfect because they're wearing colored lenses. They're ignoring all the faults, all the imperfections, all the problems. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of how it starts. But the couple that's been married for 30 years, they ain't wearing lenses anymore. That married couple, after 30 years, they've seen, you've seen your spouse at their worst. You've seen them at their ugliest, at their pettiest. You've got scars from the fights that you've had with each other. But the beauty of that mature love is it says, I know how imperfect you are better than anyone else, and I choose to love you anyway. You see how much more beautiful that is? If God forgot, his love for you would be built on a foundation of ignorance of all the wrong things with you. Because tell me, who in your life, if you took out all the bad stuff, wouldn't be easy to love? Right? Oh, man, you'd be great if it was just everything about your personality you just took away. I think you'd be awesome. Of course. But God's love for us is not based on ignorance of our failures and mistakes. It is in spite of them that he could look at all that ugliness, all the pain, all the wounds that we've caused, all the wrongs we've done, and choose to love us that same way as before those colored lenses came off. That's the beauty of God not remembering our sins. It's God choosing not to hold them against us. God takes the Carfax report of your life and he burns it. He knows it. He says, I don't care. I still want you. Verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete because the new covenant is a perfect covenant that gives us perfect hope on the perfect promise of a perfect sacrifice administered by a perfect priest in the perfect sanctuary obtaining for us perfect forgiveness. And all that perfect church isn't even the best part. See, the best part of the new covenant is that the covenant isn't the only thing that's made new. We are. Belonging to God is not just an idea, it's an identity. The problem is we live in a culture that is so steeped in guilt and shame that we swim in them without even realizing it. You ever notice how church people love to use cheesy, stupid, little Christian cliches like a mantra without ever stopping to consider, like, hey, is this true? Is this right? Doesn't matter. I'll just say it to people, because why not? It sounds good. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Nope. God will never give you more than you can handle. Nope. God helps those who help themselves. 
So much nope. So much nope. It's physically painful to me to try to express to you the gravity of the nope. That is not just unbiblical. It's anti-biblical. It is absolutely against the core message of the gospel because God only helps those who can't help themselves. That's why it's called grace. Let's try this one up for size. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Anybody ever say that? I, look, I, you can put your hands up. I'm not going to yell at you. I've done it, right? Let's be honest in church. Let's do it. Weird thing. Hold on there, son. What's the problem with that statement? I sin. That's true. I'm saved by grace. That's true. So tell me, what's the problem? I don't know why I'm doing that voice. <laughs> My dad was a farmer. I guess it counts. <laughs> Let me tell you the problem with that statement. It's tricky. Yes, we sin. That's true. It's true that the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation was the need for it. That's true. But the most dangerous lies are blatant. They are slight twists on actual truth. Think about it for a second. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. What does that say about you? Where is your identity in that statement? It's in your sin. I am my sin. I'm defined by my sin. This is the natural part of me. My sin is normal. It's who I am. It's nothing I can really do about it. It's not my fault because I'm a sinner. And as the great poet tells us, player's going to play, hater's going to hate, sinner's going to sin. Nothing really, guys? Come on. That was worth a little chuckle. The problem with the statement, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, is that it's wrong. And it's a complete rejection of the message of the gospel. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So tell me, church, if you are just a sinner saved by grace, where would the old go? Because it looks like it's sitting right there in the middle of how you define yourself. What's changed? If you're a sinner saved by grace, what's different about you in Jesus? The statement, I'm a sinner saved by grace, is a rejection of the new life that Jesus gives. You are not a sinner saved by grace, you are a new creation. You still going to sin? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Because when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we receive the nature of the Spirit of God. But we are still living in a flesh that has been contaminated by the nature of sin. And those two natures will dwell within you at war with one another, battling against one another. And the one that wins is typically going to be the one that you feed the one that you focus on, 
The more you focus on Jesus, the more you prioritize and value and pursue Jesus, the stronger that nature of the Spirit gets, and the easier it is, the more often it will be that the nature of the Spirit will beat out the nature of the flesh. See, the nature of the Spirit desires to honor and obey and follow God. The nature of the flesh desires to sin and engage in self-centeredness. In this life, you will never be perfect because we are works in progress. Biblically, we refer to this as progressive sanctification. That is when you receive the Holy Spirit, He works on your heart and He is in the active process of making you holy, making you like Jesus. And the more you surrender to Him, the more you turn to Him, the stronger that Spirit within you gets. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know what the problem with this statement is? It's a little thing. Such an easy twist to miss. It's one word. Am. Am is present tense. Am is active. Am is that's who you are. That little twist changes everything. Because the truth is, no, you were a sinner. You are saved by grace, and now you are a new creation. See, church, you are not defined by your sin any longer. That's not who you are. Your identity is not in it. That is the old self. That is the self that was put to death with Jesus when you were baptized into him. That is the death that Jesus calls us to die to every single day in our pursuit of him. That is the nature of sin. That's the old. That's not who you are anymore. You are not a sinner saved by grace. See, everything that we do flows out of the source of who we are. And this is what makes the new covenant so much greater, is a greater identity. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by the failures of your past. The mistakes that you've made, you're defined by the, the sacrifice of Jesus, by the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. You're not defined by the wrong things that you have done. You're defined by what he has done. Church, you are not defined by your sin. You're defined by your Savior. You're not who you feel like. You're not who you want to say that you are. You are who he says that you are. And the truth that we have to understand is if Jesus died to set you free from sin, stop defining yourself by it. Stop living in your past. Stop living in the old that is gone and passed away. You've been brought out of that life into a new life. So don't keep trying to live the old one. Don't define yourself by the thing that Jesus died to free you from. Because of Jesus, we have perfect forgiveness. You are no longer a slave to that sin. For he has set you free. You are not a sinner Saved by grace, you are a child of God. And it's time you stopped walking. Stop walking in the old shoes. Stop walking in the old life. Stop defining yourself in the old way and live in the freedom and the peace and the power of who you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I make all things new. That starts with you. And if Jesus has made you new, then be new. You are a child of God. 
And the purpose and goal of our lives should be to follow him so that when people look at us, they go, wow, you look just like your dad. Can that be our goal? Not guilt, not shame, but to bear the image of the God who makes us his children through his great love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are, for the depth of your incredible love for us, that you were not scared away by the price tag or the exhaustive lists of imperfections, but that your love for us was greater than all things, that you bought us at a great price. God, help us see ourselves not as who we were, but as who we are in you, that we would live for you, that we would pursue you, that we would run to you like children to their parents screaming with joy, Daddy. May the purpose and goal of our life be to just cling to you and show you to those around us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.